Section 22 of The Science History of the Universe, Volume 8. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria James. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 8. Edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Part 3, Mathematical Applications. Chapter 3, Surveying and Navigation. One of the earliest necessities of civilization was a system of ascertaining by measurement the shape and size of any portion of the Earth's surface and representing the results on a reduced scale on maps. This is the surveyor's art and is supposed to have originated in Egypt, where property boundaries were annually obliterated by the inundations of the Nile. In Rome, surveying was considered one of the liberal arts, and the measurement of lands was entrusted to public officers who enjoyed certain privileges. Julius Caesar conceived the idea of a complete survey of the whole empire. For this purpose, three geometers were employed. Theodotus, entrusted with the survey of the northern provinces, Xenodoxus, with the survey of the eastern, and Polyclitus of the southern. It is stated that a partial survey was finished in 19 BC and the whole completed in 6 AD. The materials collected were lodged in the public archives, receiving from time to time marks and notes to designate the various changes in the provinces. It was consulted by Pliny. The numerous changes at length required the construction of another chart with corrected measurements, which was effected about 230 AD under Alexander Severus. Of this chart, the celebrated document Tabula Putingeriana is supposed by some modern critics to be an imperfect copy. The mathematicians of the Alexandrian school made a distinct contribution to the art of surveying. Most authorities believe Heron of Alexandria to be the author of Dioptra, though some writers have attributed it to another mathematician of a later date by the name of Heron. Dioptra, says Venturi, were instruments resembling the modern theodolites. The instrument consisted of a rod four yards long with little plates at the end for aiming. This rested upon a circular disc. The rod could be moved horizontally and also vertically. By turning the rod around until stopped by two suitably located pins on the circular disc, the surveyor could work off a line perpendicular to a given direction. The level and plumb line were also used. Heron explains, with the aid of these instruments and of geometry, a large number of surveying problems, such as to find the distance between two points, only one of which is accessible, or between two points which are visible but both inaccessible, from a given point to run perpendicular to a line which cannot be approached, to find the difference of level between two points, and to measure the area of a field without entering it. The Dioptra discloses considerable mathematical ability, but it gives rules and directions without proof. The higher development of the art of surveying, like so many other mechanical arts depending on mathematics, is of comparatively recent date. The enormous areas of new land opened for habitation in the New World, the constructions of railroads, bridges, and waterworks, 
have employed the keenest practical minds in solving large surveying and engineering problems, of which the government does a large part. Surveys may be divided into three classes. First, those made for general purposes or information surveys, which may be exploratory, geodetic, geographic, topographic, or geologic. Second, those made for jurisdictional purposes, or cadastral surveys, which define political boundaries and those of private property and determine the enclosed areas. Third, there are surveys made for construction purposes or engineering surveys, on which are based estimates of the cost of public and private works, such as canals, railways, water supplies, and the like, and their construction and improvement. The topographic survey, one of those in the first class, is made for military, industrial, and scientific purposes. The topographic map, made directly from nature by measurements and sketches on the ground, is the mother map from which all others are derived. It shows with accuracy all the drainage, relief, and cultural features which it is practicable to represent on the scale chosen. These features are numerous and important if the government maps of the advanced modern nations are to be taken as a model. On the topographical maps issued by the United States Geological Survey are exhibited hydrography, or water features, such as ponds, streams, lakes, and swamps, hypsography, or relief of surface, as hills, valleys, and plains, and the features constructed by man, as cities, roads, and villages, with the names and boundaries. The uses of topographic maps are many. For the purposes of a national government or a state, they are invaluable as they furnish data from which may be determined the value of projects for highway improvement, for railways, for city water supply and sewerage, and for the subdivision into counties, townships, and the like. They serve the military department in locating encampment grounds, in planning practice or actual operations in the field and during war, in indicating the precise situations of ravines, ditches, buildings, hills, and streams. The post office department utilizes them in considering all problems connected with the changing of mail routes, star routes, and especially in connection with contracts and assignments of rural free delivery routes. In the future, wooded areas are to be indicated on the United States government maps so that foresters will find them useful, as well as those people who are investigating mineral resources, water power, and land reclamation. The operations involved in surveying are the measurement of distances, level, horizontal, vertical, and inclined, and of angles, horizontal, vertical, and inclined, and the necessary drawing and computing to represent properly on paper the information obtained by the fieldwork. If the tract to be surveyed is so large that the curvature of the Earth's surface must be taken into account, it is a geodetic survey. The practical basis of surveying is the mathematical theory of the triangle and the solution of the various problems of the triangle by means of geometrical formulae and logarithms. 
If two angles and one side of a triangle are known, the third angle and the length of the other two sides can be computed by easy geometrical rules. Figure 10, examples of triangulation. The use of logarithms, which are artificial numbers so devised that they shorten the processes of multiplication and division, reduces the work of computing the long tables of angles and measurements, which often falls to the work of the surveyor. Now, an actual measurement of a portion of the Earth's surface can be made by anyone by means of a rope, a tape, or a chain, thus ensuring actual knowledge of the length of one side, called the baseline, of the future triangle. By means of a telescope and a level, together with other ingenious devices placed at the end of the baseline, two objects in a given area are sighted, as, for instance, a church steeple in one direction and a signal placed at the other end of the baseline. The three points are the apexes of the triangle formed by connecting lines. The angles can be measured by the instruments at the surveyor's hand. The length of the baseline is known, therefore, the length of the other two sides can be computed. This principle of triangulation has many variations, and in actual practice there are many complicating elements. The topography of an area of any size hangs not on one, but on a system of triangles. In the preliminary work, an arbitrary line, or meridian, is established, from which to compute the measurements. But if the actual position is required, that is, the location on the Earth's surface according to latitude and longitude, observations of the sun or of the fixed stars must be made, and the measurements recorded. The elevation of the pole measures the distance of the observer from the equator, and this distance is the latitude of a place, north or south, the pole lying midway between the highest and lowest positions of the pole star. In practice, other means, not quite so accurate, but useful, may be used for determining the latitude. One of the common methods, exact enough for ordinary geographical reconnaissances, is to measure the angular altitude of the sun when on the meridian, and from this altitude, with the aid of the declination taken from the nautical almanac, and with correction for refraction, the latitude is obtained. This method on land requires the use of an artificial horizon in place of the natural. But to fix the position of any place on the globe, it is necessary to know at what point on the circle of latitude it lies, or its longitude. This is a more difficult matter, and one that requires for its determination, astronomically, the introduction of the element of time. Strictly speaking, longitude is the angle at the pole contained between two meridians, one of which, called the prime meridian, passes through some conventional point from which the angle is measured. The longitude of the conventional point is zero, and longitudes are reckoned east and west from it to 180 degrees in arc and to 12 hours in time, 15 degrees being equal to one hour. In Great Britain, universally, and in the United States generally, geographers reckon from the meridian of the transit circle at the Royal Observatory of Greenwich in England. The meridian of Washington is also used occasionally in the United States.
On shore, the most accurate method is to compare the time of the two places by means of the electric telegraph, while at sea, the local time being determined by observation of some celestial object, it is compared with Greenwich time, as shown by a chronometer carefully set and regulated before sailing. The instruments used in surveying are numerous, but the more important are the measuring chain, the vernier, the level, the barometer, and compass, the transit, the sextant, and the adolite. The instruments commonly used in the measurement of angles are the compass, which determines directions and, indirectly, angles, and the transit, which determines angles and, indirectly, directions. The sextant is an angle-measuring instrument, the use of which is confined to certain particular operations, such as the location of soundings taken offshore and angular measurements at sea. The compass consists of a line of sight attached to a graduated circular box, in the center of which is hung, on a pivot, a magnetic needle. At any place on the Earth's surface, the needle, if allowed to swing freely, will assume a position in what is called the magnetic meridian of the place. If the direction of any line is required, the compass may be placed at one end of the line, and the line of sight may be made to coincide with the line. The needle lying in the magnetic meridian and the zero of the graduations of the circular needle box being in the line of sight, the angle that the line on the ground makes with the magnetic meridian is read on the graduated circle. At a very few places on the Earth's surface, the needle points to the true north. When it does not point thus, the angle that the magnetic meridional plane makes at any point with the true meridional plane is called the magnetic declination. This declination is subject at every place to changes, regular and irregular, so that the magnetic bearings of lines run with the compass are required to be reduced to the true bearings. The sextant is an important instrument in surveying and navigation used for measuring the angular distance of two stars or other objects, or the altitude of a star above the horizon, the two images being brought into coincidence by reflection from the transmitting horizon glass. In the hands of a competent observer, the work of the sextant is extremely accurate. The first inventor of the sextant, quadrant, was Newton. A description of this instrument was found among his papers after his death, not, however, until after its reinvention by Thomas Godfrey of Philadelphia in 1730. This is the instrument used by seamen for observations for finding latitude and longitude. The transit is used for measuring horizontal angles and resembles a theodolite, but is not intended for very precise measurements. The theodolite has appeared in a variety of forms. Its purpose is to measure horizontal and sometimes vertical angles. It consists essentially of a telescope which has a motion about a horizontal axis which rests in two pillars which are perpendicular to the axis of rotation of the telescope. These pillars are fixed at right angles to a plate, which turns upon a vertical axis and to which is attached a vernier. Around this is a second plate, graduated and concentric with the first. It may also be provided with a vertical circle, 
and if this is not very much smaller than the horizontal circle, the instrument is called an altazimuth. If it is provided with a delicate striding level and is in every way convenient for astronomical work, it is called a universal instrument. A small altazimuth with a concentric magnetic compass is called a surveyor's transit. A theodolite in which the whole instrument, except the feet and their connections, turns relatively to the latter and can be clamped in different positions, is called a repeating circle. Figure 11, Essential Parts of Theodolite A. Telescope B. I-tube C. Ratchet and pinion for moving I-tube D. Screw for adjustment of cross wires E. Axis of rotation F. Pillars supporting axis G. Compass H. Upper plate carrying vernier I. Lower graduated plate J. Clamp and tangent screws for upper plate K levels, M ball and socket joint with four leveling screws, N spindle axis of rotation of azimuth plate, T tripod. A hydrographic survey is one that has to do with any body of water and may be undertaken for any one of a number of purposes. One of the most important uses of hydrographic surveying is to supply maps of the bed of the sea, or harbor, or bay, or river for the information of seamen. In this case, it is necessary to locate the channels, dangerous rocks, and shoals. In many cases, the work of the hydrographic surveyor goes much farther than this, and determines the cross-sections of streams, their velocities, their discharge, the direction of their currents, and the character of their beds. The topography of the bed of a body of water is determined by sounding, that is, measuring the depth of water. If many points are observed, a contour map of the bottom may be drawn, the water surface being the plane of reference. For depths less than 15 or 20 feet, a pole is used. Soundings made in moderately deep water are made with a weight, known as a lead, attached to a suitable line. There is a deep-sea sounding machine, by the aid of which soundings may be made to great depths with a close approach to accuracy. This result has been attained by a combination of improvements in which great ingenuity has been displayed and in which the inventive genius of Sir William Thompson has been particularly conspicuous. The principal features of the most perfect sounding machines are 1. The sinker, which is a cannonball through which passes a cylinder provided with a valve to collect and retain a specimen of the bottom, the cylinder being, by an ingenious mechanical arrangement, detached from the shot, which remains at the bottom. Two, the line, made of steel wire, weighing about 14 and one-half pounds to the nautical mile. Three, machinery for regulating the lowering of the sinker and for reeling in the wire with the cylinder attached in such a manner that the irregular strain due to the motion of the ship may be guarded against, and the danger of breakage thus reduced to a minimum. In the deepest accurate sounding yet made, the bottom was reached at the depth of 4,655 fathoms. Figure 12. The Solar Transit the determination of the coastline is accomplished by a general scheme of triangulation, just as the topographical map of land areas is determined by it, but the necessity of taking observations from a ship 
makes the practice somewhat different. A map of a section of coast is the double product of the measurements of angles and baselines and the soundings taken to determine the depth of the water. The survey is made by two parties, one on shore and one in a boat sailing along the coast. If the reckoning of a ship could be accurately kept as she runs along a coast, a very good chart could be made simply by taking exact bearings of various points on the shoreline and noting the time. The track of the ship would be the baseline, and the intersections of the bearings would fix the positions of the shoreline. The latitude and longitude would be determined accurately at intervals of 40 or 60 miles, and the intervening points could be plotted by plane surveying methods. The bearing of any terrestrial object can be determined from a ship by astronomical methods, but owing to currents, leeway, and difficulties in steering, the accuracy of the track base cannot be depended upon. Therefore, the astronomical observations are made on shore with the transit and zenith telescope. The ship and shore parties proceed along the coast by carefully determined stages, each party taking angular measurements from three points and soundings. Both parties take angular measurements from some fixed object farther inshore, and by comparing observations, determining the exact position of the ship at certain intervals, and establishing a system of triangles, not only with the shore party, but with new fixed objects at each stage, the data for coastline are obtained. The work can be plotted on a polyconic chart to include the coast, the scale depending on its extent. The art of the land surveyor is closely allied to that of the seaman, who is obliged to find his course in any extended voyage by angular observations of the heavenly bodies and the mathematical solution of the problems thus offered. The mariner has more than an academic interest in determining his position. It is a matter of life and death to him, and navigation depends mainly upon the acquisition of that knowledge. Navigation is the art or science of directing the course of vessels as they sail from one part of the world to another. The management of the sails, or as it may be of machinery, the holding of the assigned course by proper steering, and the working of the ship generally pertain rather to seamanship. The two fundamental problems of navigation are the determination of the ship's position at a given moment, and the decision of the most advantageous course to be steered in order to reach a given point. The methods of solving the first are, in general, four. One, by reference to one or more known and visible landmarks. Two, by ascertaining through soundings the depth and character of the bottom. Three, by calculating the direction and distance sailed from a previously determined position. And four, by ascertaining the latitude and longitude by observations of the heavenly bodies. The places of the sun, moon, planets, and fixed stars are deduced from observation and calculation, and are published in nautical almanacs, the use of which, together with logarithmic and other tables computed for the purpose, is necessary in reducing observations taken to determine latitude, longitude, and the error of the compass. The calculation of a ship's place at sea, independently of observations of the heavenly bodies, is called dead reckoning. The ship's position is calculated simply from the distance she has run by the log and the courses steered by the compass, this being rectified by due allowances for drift and leeway. 
In very early times, dead reckoning was an important branch of knowledge in which the instruments for measuring time, such as the sand glass, played a considerable part. The sand glass is still found on many sailing ships using the old-fashioned log. The earliest mode of measuring the speed of a vessel at sea was by throwing overboard a heavy piece of wood so shaped that it resisted being dragged through the water and with a line tied to it. The block of wood was the log and the string had knots in it so arranged that when one knot ran through a sailor's fingers in half a minute, measured by the sand glass, the vessel was going at the speed of one nautical mile an hour, ten knots on the line, ten miles, and so forth. The nautical mile is of such a length that sixty of them constitute one degree on a great circle of the earth. Therefore, the knots are fifty feet and seven inches apart. Patent logs are generally used now at sea, those most commonly found on vessels being either the harpoon or the taffrail log. The harpoon log is shaped like a torpedo and has at one end a metal loop to which the log line is fastened, and at the other, fans which cause the machine to spin round as it is drawn through the water. The spinning of the instrument sets a clockwork machinery in motion, which records the speed of the vessel upon dials, the rotation of the instrument being, of course, dependent upon the rate at which it is dragged through the water. In the taffrail log, the recording machinery is secured to the taffrail, and the fan is towed astern at the end of a long line. If the sea were a smooth, plain surface, without currents or tides, it would be a simple matter to fix accurately the position of a vessel, and to take her from one place to another on the earth's surface by dead reckoning only. But as it is in constant motion, influenced by irregular currents and tides and the drift of the waves, it becomes necessary to have some more accurate method to ensure safe navigation, and this is to be found in the system of observation of the heavenly bodies, or, in other words, in the science of nautical astronomy. Thus the angular measurement of the sun and the fixed stars by means of the sextant becomes a necessity, and also the solution of the triangle problems by means of logarithms and trigonometrical formulae. Since the sailor always has the horizon and zenith with him, he can find his latitude at any time by taking the meridian altitude of the sun and correcting that by the declination found in his nautical almanac. His longitude will be found by the aid of the sun and a chronometer. The apparent time at sea he will find by observing the sun's hour angle. Apparent time must be turned into mean time by applying the equation of time, and mean time at ship must be compared with mean time at Greenwich, as ascertained by the chronometer. The difference between these two is the ship's longitude. Nautical almanacs are published by the governments of Great Britain, the United States, and most other maritime powers. These are almanacs for the use of navigators and astronomers, in which are given the ephemerides of all the bodies of the solar system, places of the fixed stars, predictions of astronomical phenomena, and the angular distances of the moon from the sun, planets, and fixed stars. The laws of the tides and of storms must also be studied by the seamen, especially the law of storms, 
in a navigational sense. This expression generally means the law of circular storms or cyclones and should be understood by all who are responsible for the safe conduct of foreign-going ships. Owing to the nature of the cyclone, very fair general rules can be made which assist the mariner in steering a course away from the storm's center. A good many generalizations have been made in regard to winds in a wide sense. Airy found that the wind never blows steadily for any period of time except from eight points of the compass, when in any other quarter it is merely shifting round to one of these points. It never blows at all directly from the south. The two most prevalent winds are south-southwest and west-southwest. The first serious study of the circulation of winds on the Earth's surface was instituted at the beginning of the second quarter of this century by W. H. Dove, William C. Redfield, and James P. Epsey, followed by researches of W. Reed, Piddington, and Elias Loomis. But the deepest insight into the wonderful correlations that exist among the varied motions of the atmosphere was obtained by William Farrell, 1817-1891. He was born in Fulton County, Pennsylvania, and brought up on a farm. In 1885 appeared his recent advances in meteorology. In the opinion of a leading European meteorologist, Julius Hahn of Vienna, Farrell has contributed more to the advance of the physics of the atmosphere than any other living physicist or meteorologist. Farrell teaches that the air flows in great spirals toward the poles, both in the upper strata of the atmosphere and on the Earth's surface beyond the 30th degree of latitude, while the return current blows at nearly right angles to the above spirals in the middle strata as well as on the Earth's surface, in a zone comprised between the parallels 30 degrees north and 30 degrees south. The idea of three superposed currents blowing spirals was first advanced by James Thompson, but was published in a very meager abstract. Another theory of the general circulation of the atmosphere was propounded by Werner Siemens of Berlin, in which an attempt is made to apply thermodynamics to aerial currents. Important new points of view have been introduced recently by Heimholtz, who concludes that when two air currents blow one above the other in different directions, a system of air waves must arise in the same way as waves are formed on the sea. He and A. Oberbeck showed that when the waves on the sea attain lengths of from 16 to 33 feet, the air waves must attain lengths of from 10 to 20 miles and proportional depths. Superposed strata would thus mix more thoroughly and their energy would be partly dissipated. From hydrodynamical equations of rotation, Heimholtz established the reason why the observed velocity from equatorial regions is much less in a latitude of, say, 20 degrees or 30 degrees than it would be were the movements unchecked. Another science bearing directly on navigation is the construction of vessels, both in its architectural aspect and in its relations to magnetism. The earth being a magnet, it induces magnetism in all things on its surface. When an iron ship is being built, the hammering which she undergoes 
causes magnetism of a more or less permanent character to be induced in her. This is known as sub-permanent magnetism, because though a ship rarely loses it altogether, it alters very much after the vessel is launched, through change of position, through being knocked about in a heavy sea, and from other causes. In the case of a ship built head south, in northern latitudes, her blue polarity will be in her bow, and the north point of her compass needle will be attracted to it. This will cause westerly deviations as the ship's head passes through the western half of the compass and easterly when through the eastern. If her head is north when building, her stern will have blue polarity, and she will have easterly deviation with her head in the western semicircle of the compass and westerly deviation with her head in the eastern semicircle. With her head east when building, she will have more blue polarity in her starboard side than in her port, and with her head west when building, there will be easterly deviation on southerly courses and westerly deviation on northerly. Figure 14, Chart of Magnetic Variation A ship, like everything else, has its center of gravity, though the center is not a fixed point. It varies with every change in the position and quantity of the weights in her. A ship has also her center of buoyancy. This is the geometrical center of her immersed portion, and its position can be arrived at with great certainty. Thus, a vessel floating upright and at rest will fulfill certain conditions. First, she will displace a weight of water equal to her own weight. Secondly, her center of gravity will lie in one and the same vertical line with the center of gravity of the volume of water displaced, and in that line is the center of buoyancy. If weights are moved in a vessel laterally, the position of her center of gravity is changed laterally too. But when she is healed by wind or sea, no change occurs in it. The buoyancy, acting upward through the center of buoyancy, shifting as it does from side to side as a ship is healed over or rolls through the action of wind or sea, is the upward riding force mainly to be relied upon to keep a vessel from capsizing. The knowledge of mathematical laws and principles is necessary to good seamanship, but perhaps in no art is the practical and actual handling of apparatus more useful than in that of the mariner. Theory can but lead the learner to the edges of the subject. Science and practice must go hand in hand before any substantial acquirements can be gained. End of section 22